Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here today, gathering us here before you, seeking to know more of you and the sanctifying power of prayer in your Holy Spirit. I pray you'll enable me to teach your truth as you've bestowed that truth to us by Jesus Christ, your Son. Let these lessons be what we seek of you this day and always. Prayers that will give us joy and delight, drawing us nearer to you. And let prayer be our petition to you as you deliver us in days of trouble. Not only us, but there's a lot of people around the world right now praying for deliverance. Let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers of this church. You know, as we work through the next weeks, we just pray that uh, we'll blossom with spiritual fruit for your purposes and to be worthy of your calling. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, can everybody hear me okay? You know, when I taught this, uh, the first lesson a couple weeks ago, Afterwards, the comment that I um, heard most often was, thanks for being transparent. And, you know, I got to thinking about that uh, quite a bit. And it came to me that what I talked about must have been something that you all identify with in your prayer habits, too. You know, and a couple weeks ago on the first uh, lesson we had, I wanted to set a context for the classes that would follow. You know, that prayer is faith, prayer seeks God. Uh, prayer results in the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification. Today, um, we're going to talk about Paul's passion for people, and uh, I guess we can add another one, love for the brethren. So, you know, I recognize that these are also current works in my own life, and I pray they are in yours also. You know, I think there's a sense that prayer is unnatural to us in a way. Uh, it's created for fellowship with the Creator, but, you know, sometimes I think, well, the effects of the fall has left us sometimes lazy, um, maybe indifference, indifferent to the importance of prayer. And it's, you know, it's the old self getting in the way. It resists the Holy Spirit. At least I see that in myself. That was one of the reasons I'm aware of my failed attempts, to tell you the truth, uh, to be diligent in prayer. And it's why I noticed diligence in others, like I mentioned with Dave Kunsky a couple weeks ago. So Anne's going to tell you, if you ask her, <laughs> I'm probably on the uh, stoic side of hugging, for instance. Um, she got me a t-shirt that said I was the original social distancer. <laughs> you know, it carries over into my, my prayer habits, too, because, you know, I want to express the deep emotions of my soul, and while at the same time, I'm unclear about what I ought to pray for and how to be vulnerable in my prayers. Anyone else thinking the same thing with their prayers? I got a, I got a hand over here. But, you know, look at this Old Testament passage from Isaiah 54. I think we're going to have it up here in just a second. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens... He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. You know, that really struck me. Those who are taught, that's what I want. It's, it's what I've wanted ever since I uh, became a believer. So how do you find yourselves being taught by the Holy Spirit? You know, 
daily reading of the Word of God, uh, women's Bible study on Tuesday night, men's Bible study on Thursday night, Martin Lloyd-Jones doctrine, great doctrines of the Bible, listening to podcasts. You know, in Revelation, there's a, there's a wonderful passage that reveals what happens in prayer. Revelations uh, 8, verses 1 through 4. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about an hour, for about a half hour. You know, when I first read that, I wondered, how did, how did John figure it was a half hour? They didn't have watches back then. But then I go on. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And when I read that this week, I thought, wow, that's going on right now. So this lesson is about, as I said, it's about Paul's passion for people. You know, I'm going to mention probably a couple times uh, things about MCRD, about being in the Marine Corps. Um, for those of you that don't know what MCRD stands for, it's Marine Corps Recruit Depot, and it's down on Pacific Coast Highway between the highway and um, Lindbergh Field. So I have, a, I have a passion for the recruits at MCRD. You know, I know what they're going to endure, not just in training, but once they get to the Fleet Marine Force. I have a pretty good idea what's in mind once they return to civilian life. So I want to teach and pray in a way that's relevant to their current and future life. And, you know, last Sunday, I was down there, and I taught a module on God in the military. Now, you know, for, that's a tough class for me, because in, and for them, because in their mind, they want to know what God says about taking another person's life. And, you know, I'll talk about the difference between murder and killing from the uh, Sixth Commandment or protecting others from evil, Milai, those of you that remember Milai, and Romans 13. But what makes it tough is that, you know, I recognize now what I didn't recognize then. And I hope we consider how to use Paul's passion for people, believers, and unbelievers in his prayers, and how we can relate and also find relevance in our own prayers. Now, we're going to watch a video right now. It's about nine minutes, so we'll do that, and then I'll make some comments afterwards. And hopefully we'll have time for questions at the end. And maybe I'll be asking the questions, <laughs> okay? Heart attitude toward the people for whom he prays. He does not pray as some kind of professional, a professional interceder. My friend John Piper has written a book called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And nowhere ought that to be more obvious than in the feelings and love we ought to develop for the people for whom we are praying. It's very difficult to pray for people if we don't love them. But conversely, if we do love them, it makes it a lot easier to pray for them. 
Indeed, praying for them will help us love them more. But conversely, loving them more, if we're Christians, will also give us impetus to pray for them. What is striking about this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 is how the apostle surrounds his prayer for the Thessalonian believers with a desire to be with them, with his sheer unadulterated pleasure when he gets good reports from them. Imagine this language articulated in the context of a local church. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Now, th this is not the language of some distance professional who's dutifully going through a checklist of prayers. This is someone who has a spectacularly deep and loving relationship with the believers for whom he's praying. And that presupposes taking the time to get to know them, uh, to know their concerns, and especially to gather reports of how they are faring under opposition and persecution. He hears about their continuing growth in grace, and uh, he hears about their steadfastness, their love for the Apostle Paul himself, and all of these things make his heart leap with joy. Not only does he testify that he is praying for them, but he testifies how much he would like to be with them. Uh, he really wants to visit them again, and there is a reason. He not only wants to be with them because he loves them, you like to be with the people whom you love, but he wants to be with them so that he can do them good. Do you hear how he words it? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. In other words, he hears good reports of their faith and of their love, and he hears good reports of, of their steadfastness, either, even under persecution, but he knows that they need more Bible teaching, they need more instruction, they need better grounding in the gospel, and he knows that if he could be with them, he could serve them. His expressions of love for them are not grounded in some sort of desire simply to bask in their glow, to be happy in their presence, but he wants to be there precisely so that he can share his life and his apostolic teaching, his own ministry with them, to establish them ever more deeply in the faith. And within that framework, then, he utters this specific prayer. He wants God to open the way so that he can come to them. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. In other words, here there is not some prayer for mere abstract blessing, but that God would so open up the way, whatever the blockage is, finances, schedule, his responsibilities elsewhere, so that he can actually go and visit them again in Thessalonica. And uh, he knows that God is the sovereign over all events, over life, over history, so he is the one to approach when we want things to open up so that um, plans will go in a certain direction. And this then so that he can serve them more richly, more abundantly. And then he gives this prayer for them. It is reminiscent of what he's already prayed. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. Now, you recall earlier 
Paul, in other passages, had thanked God for the reports of their love. But he doesn't want this to be static. He wants their love to grow and abound, not only for each other, but for him as the apostle, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. So once again, praying for what is commonly called sanctification, for being worthy of the gospel of God, for living in increasing conformity to Christ Jesus. Some of us, I'm sure, have had the experience of uh, crossing cultural barriers. Maybe we've done short-term missions somewhere in another culture, another language. Or some of us have spent time crossing cultural barriers and becoming acculturated so that we learn another language and learn to share Christ with a people with a different set of food, um, different set of uh, jokes, different sense of humor, uh, different set of cultural memories, uh, different kind of government. Uh, and all of these things are a bit hard to, 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 to face. We call it culture shock. When any one particular culture changes fast enough, the people in the culture face a certain kind of culture shock because they are more comfortable with the past than they are with the future. And Christians, of course, who desire to communicate the gospel know that it is part of their responsibility to cope with culture shock as they cross cultural frontiers in order to spread the good news of the gospel of Christ, even when those cultural frontiers are within their own country. But the supreme culture shock, in a sense, is suddenly arriving in the new heaven and the new earth, the home of glory, with no more sin, no more hate, no more greed, no more murder, no more bitterness, no more blasphemy, no more weakness, no more death. And that's just the negative side of things, but everywhere, everywhere, holiness, thanksgiving, praise, love for God with heart and soul and mind and strength, love for our neighbor as ourselves. That is the promised inheritance of brothers and sisters in Christ on the last day. And because we know that's where we're going, because we know that's where we're heading, because that is the ultimate culture shock, because our potential for being there has already been secured, absolutely secured by Christ Jesus. Therefore, real Christians want to reduce that ultimate culture shock by being now as holy as pardoned sinners can be before that final culture shock comes. That's exactly what Paul says regarding his prayer for the Thessalonians. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. In other words, he wants the believers to grow in holiness, to grow in love, to grow in conformity to Christ, to grow in what it means to be worthy of the calling we've received, to grow in sanctification precisely so that there's minimal culture shock when the final curtain falls and we stand before a holy God in His presence in resurrection existence on the last day 
with no sin or blemish anywhere in view and our own hearts purified. And that's why Christians, amongst all of their other praying, pray with believers across the centuries. Yes, yes, even so, come Lord Jesus. Culture shock. You know, Scripture shows us that, uh, that Paul looked back on his old self, his persecution of believers, to understand what new believers in Christ must be concerned about. So, you know, a good starting point is to reflect on our own attitudes prior to believing and repenting. You know, I don't want anyone to get bogged down with these things um, from which Christ's redeeming work of forgiveness has freed us. But, you know, there's a sense that it does help to view our darkened lives before salvation and then our lives after salvation, especially with gratitude. You know, there's two different worlds. The unbeliever, they only know one world. The believer, we know two worlds. We know the old and the new. The unbeliever, they have no vision uh, for what we know is relevant in eternity. They only know the world they're in now. And, and that world's passing away. They might see beyond this life, but it's an opaque vision without repentance and belief. There's only a desire, it seems to me, uh, for more of whatever they think might mitigate their life in the here and now. Even if it's ultimately unsatisfying. You know, as they get more, they realize they can't maintain this false peace with more to keep them constantly in a false life. The dark night of the soul, it's a closed loop that's never gonna satisfy. The Holy Spirit, for us, it broke that loop and it took us to the cross and that's what's needed. So I mention all this to bring us to Paul's passion for people. He already put it up there, uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 to 12. Read it again here. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted. Comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what's lacking in your faith. You know, James comments, and we've been hearing sermons about James for the last few weeks, but he comments in um, James 4 too, we don't have because we don't ask, because of what's lacking in our faith. You know, kind of reminds me of the father in Mark 9, who I'll comment about later on. In 4.2 it says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You know, when I was in Israel uh, in 2004, had a female tour guide and um, talked to her once. This is a true story. It, it's a pretty good illustration of how we ask wrongly. The Infitada had shut down uh, tourism in Israel for the last couple of years before I got there. 
And the licensed tour guides, all the tour guides in Israel are licensed. Some of you have probably been there and you know that. Uh, but they were suffering because they didn't have any work. So the government found ways to employ them on, on a salary. And uh, her job was at the Wailing Wall. And at the Wailing Wall, people write out prayers and they, they put them in the cracks. They insert the, the paper in the cracks in the wall. And the way the Wailing Wall is set up, you got this wall here, and there's a, a curtain that's perpendicular to it. And on one side of the curtain, it's all men. And on the other side of the curtain, it's all women. So our guide had this uh, job of collecting the prayers and cataloging them to see what people had written. And here are the results. On the male side, the prayers were to win the lottery or get a new car. On the female side, wait for it, the prayers were mostly for bad things to happen to other people. Think they were asking wrongly? Yeah, I think they were. Or they hadn't read James. But, you know, one reason we don't ask on behalf of others is that we don't love as we ought. And he talked about that in the video. Here, though, we can sense Paul genuinely loved these people, the Thessalonian believers, those who he had proclaimed the gospel of Christ to. And some of them probably still wondered about, what exactly did I come to believe? You know, is this real? You know, I'm reminded sometimes... Um, do you, th do you ever wonder if your prayers are like those big radio transmitters in the uh, New Mexico desert? You know, they're, they're beaming messages out into space, hoping that they'll get a response from some, some sort of life out there. You know, is anyone listening? And, and if they are listening then, and they respond, then what? You know, all that wondering, where does it leave? You know, perhaps it might lead to... Is this real? Am I really saved? And, and I think maybe that might have been part of what was going on with the Thessalonian uh, believers. The, the query kind of reminds me of what I call Nick at night. Nicodemus asks these questions of Jesus. You know, do you recognize that there's been a change in you since you came to belief? Good. Even though it's incomplete, the sanctification is ongoing and it always will be. You know, I want to make... Let me make a small excursus before going on. I was listening to R.C. Sproul this week, and he was talking about Jesus healing a leper in Luke. And, you know, as, as I was listening to it, I, I started thinking, you know, there's a contrast between this leper and this father in Mark 9. You know, in Mark 9, 21 to 25, I think I have it up here. Jesus says, how long has this been happening to him? And the, and the father said, from childhood, and it's also cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if I can, you haven't been seeing what I've been doing here? You know, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. And then contrast that with the leper in uh, Luke 5, 12 to 13. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. So you notice the difference? The father asks if he can. And his lack of faith is an impediment. The leper says, will you? He didn't doubt Jesus' ability 
So one wasn't sure he could, and the other was sure he could, but asked if he was willing. And we'll be talking about that in some following lessons. But, you know, in the meantime, we need to keep in mind as we pray, not to be fatalistic, but to acknowledge the sovereignty of the Creator. It can be difficult. I'm sure we all have loved ones that we care about who at the moment are eternally lost. Or we find ourselves asking for healing that doesn't come about the way we want. In, in most of Jesus' ministry, he healed and preached. I can't think of any time that he gave anything that has to do with prosperity. No cars, no lottery, no bad things for other people. His gift, salvation in him. That was healing, and that was the greatest gift we can get. So, back to Paul. Note the passion he has for these new believers. You know, it fuels his petitioning prayer and his love for other Christians. It energizes his gratitude to God for his constant intercession. And he prays much because he loves much. And in so doing, he provides another template for God-centered thanksgiving. There's, there's no flattery. There's no obsequious compliment to promote good vibrations from anyone or from him. He prays what points to holiness and in the praise of God. And this acknowledges that it's not Paul who's convinced a person to believe the gospel. Rather, it is God, the Holy Spirit, who's convicted these new believers. All praise to him. So, you know, previously, what had happened in Thessalonica that Paul is now getting this letter and, and making this comment, this prayer back? You know, in Acts 17, we find that Paul was forced out of town. So now, you know, he has an intense desire to be with the Thessalonians. He spent almost no time in discipleship and training. He must have been a little frustrated. You can see his commitment to the well-being of other Christians, especially new Christians, and the charge that Christ had given him to minister to the Gentiles. Yet the Holy Spirit had determined a foothold of new believers, much the same way as we're seeing the church grow today in China, in Africa, in Iran, these are, these are perilous places. And this same prayer can and should be you know, applied to these new believers here and now. New believers, because of what's happening, is possible only by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so our love also for them, same way Paul loved the Thessalonians. You know, talking about love, you, you know, you've heard there's three different kinds of love. There's, there's phileo, there's eros, and there's agape self-sacrificing love. You know, I want to kind of maybe suggest a further definition. And, and I was thinking about this recently. Um, there was a media visual of a painting. You know, you see these paintings of Madonna and Child. And what they'd done is they'd taken the Madonna part, left that the same. But for the Child part, they put in George Floyd. And this was at a, a Catholic church back east. You know, they replaced the Son of God with a common man, a criminal. And, you know, I was, I was looking at that and I'm thinking, can he redeem me? No. There's only one person that redeems us. There's only one person that has redeeming love, and that's Jesus, the Son of God. And it's what we all, you know, receive. Because he alone redeems I don't think sometimes people really 
think it through. And I'm really surprised that a Catholic church didn't think it through. You know, so Paul here, he's, he prays from a passionate affection that seeks the good of others, not for their praise or acceptance, and still less for some sense of self-fulfillment, which is what uh, D.A. Carson just mentioned in the, uh, in the video. This, you know, this past Sunday, again, I'm going to go back to the Marine Corps for a second. After I had dimiss, dismissed everybody in this company, hotel company, one of the recruits came down and and he was in uh, platoon 2174. And he tells me, he says, you know, would you pray for us? We're having a hard time figuring out how to work together, and we're not doing a very good job. And my first thought was, you know, because I know what's going on. The drill instructor, the DI, has them right where he wants them to be. This was their first crucible. And they were learning something, even though they didn't realize it. And my second thought was that the recruit, you know, he didn't ask me to pray for him. He asked me to pray for his platoon. I, I thought, this is similar to what we're talk, talking about here with Paul. So I asked him his name. And uh, I mentioned this to Anne later on, and, and she pointed out that it, it was a good illustration of what God does in our lives. You know, he brings us to more faith and reliance through whatever crucible we might be in through prayer. He seeks the good of his, this person sought the good of his unit, just like Paul sought the good for these uh, believers in Thessalonica. You know, again, when I was in Israel, I went to a second uh, possible burial tomb site uh, in a cliff. It wasn't the one that was in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It was a, surrounded by a large garden, and there were, there were people from all over the world there. And I remember listening to a hymn and it was being sung in Korean. It was, it's a, I recognized the melody. I didn't understand a thing they were saying. Um, but I'll be able to understand them in eternity. And I, it, one of the things I found interesting is when I was in the service, I was attached to the Korean Marines on an operation. And uh, I couldn't speak Korean, and they couldn't speak English. So you know how we communicated? Spanish. They had one person that had done embassy duty in Mexico City, and I had rudimentary Spanish from uh, high school. You know, but going back to uh, this garden with the tomb, tomb was at, I didn't think much then about being thankful for them in 2004. But, you know, as I read this, and I was, yeah, was kind of reminded of that, these prayers of Paul make me thankful for them now. And I, I see and feel the same for them as I read the last part of Paul's prayer, abounding in love. You know, we all miss Pastor John. We miss those we love, and, and especially those who love us, despite our shortcomings. His sermons were designed to instruct us in understanding the Word of God, to nurture us, to admonish us, to encourage us, to challenge us. You know, it was really the sum of his love of God and love of this body of believers. That's that's what it was all about, and that's what, why he was the way he was. You know, again, without realizing it then, and I do now, John prayed for us as, as Paul played, prayed for the Thessalonians. You know, the first time I met him in 2000, I sensed a man who had examined his own heart humbly and with gratitude for God's tender mercies. So let's also start there. If you're serious about reforming your prayer life, begin with your heart. 
I know I saw, I know our pastor saw it here at Pacific Hope, and I'm beginning to see it too. Paul's prayer arises out of a passionate affection that it seeks the good of others. It's not a desire for praise, still less for some sense, as I said before, professional self-fulfillment. The real question Paul's answering without asking is, how can I be most useful, not how can I feel most useful? Paul wants to be with them for their good. Jesus came to us choosing to be with us for our good. Even dying in an excruciating shame and degradation so that we might live. He calls us to serve the same way, dying to self-interest to serve others. And this prayer of Paul, it springs from reports to him of their faith and their love and their perseverance. As, as Paul read this report, you can feel the rich thankfulness for the people of God that he has. You'd think that after his prayer of thankfulness you know, that we mentioned in our first class, he, he might tail off on his thanksgiving, you know. But that's not how Paul sees things. He, he presses even with more gratitude. And though the thanks is addressed to God, nevertheless it's expressed in a way that, to encourage these new Christians. And so he encourages us also to give thanks to God for the grace in our lives, the grace in our church, the lives of those in our church. He tells them of his thanks to God. And how much would our church, in fact, all the churches be transformed if each of us made a practice to thank God for others and then tell these others what it is about them we thank God for? Actually, when I think about it, you know, Paul's thanks for them is some measure his thanks to God for his own greatest source of joy, his own salvation. You know, this is his motivation to be able to strengthen these believers. And, you know, like myself with the recruits down at MCRD, Paul knows what's ahead of them, because he was once the persecutor of the church. That's the relevance, I, I think, that he was uh, proclaiming from, preaching from. You know, in, in 1 Thessalonians, going back to 1 Thessalonians 3, looking at the uh, last couple of verses, 11 and 13, Paul says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to know you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. You know, his prayer, it's, it's a window into his profound understanding of the risen, reigning, and returning Jesus Christ, his Lord, our Lord. So, you know, parse, parse out that last part there. It says, direct our way. In other words, give us the opportunity to see and serve. Increase and abound in love. Further teaching and discipleship. And by doing so, increase us in love. Christ's love in us, it speaks volumes to a culture, you know, really that gorges itself on self-interest, lust, mutual admiration, even while it's, it's mired in multiple dysfunctions and intransigence a lot of pseudo-love. For all these perspectives, you know, there's no, no prayer that we can pray for others more fundamental than this, that God might strengthen their hearts so that they will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father on the last day. Have you prayed that for anyone lately? Even your own children? So, um, you know, this is kind of new. According to the 
the booklet that I gave that's, that's supposed to inform the way we run these sessions, um, we have questions. So I'm going to open it up to questions, but I'm going to ask some questions. Um, did everybody get one of these the last time they were here? I know I, I messed it up and had the wrong cards uh, turned out. Did, it, did everybody get one of these? So there's some up at the, I think it's at the front desk in the lobby. Okay, if, if anyone wants one, I got about four or five of them here. And um, I wanted to ask you, those of you that did get these, have they changed anything about your prayers, the way you pray? Does anybody, did anybody get the, these? Okay, so let, let, me just, let me just read off some of the questions here. Because these are questions I asked myself. I wrote it down in the front. When I pray, do I expect anything to change? Anybody here have any comment on that? How about, is my prayer just a ritual? Have I shifted my focus from me to God? Do I think my prayers will make a difference? Does prayer remind me that I'm not in control, but I'm closer to the one who is in control? Are my prayers honest? Or do I pray with impure motives? Are there obstacles between God and me? Do I talk to God about what's on my heart? Am I trying to impress God or others with my prayers? Do I give thanks for answered prayers? Does anyone here want to share a specific application of our study so far? So uh, from the first week, we talked about uh, Paul's thankfulness for the church and for others in the church, and uh, my prayers are always filled with thanksgiving to God and uh, for his goodness and for what he's done, but it, it dawned on me, too, to be thankful for all he's done through the body, uh, specific, specifically here at Pacific Hope, for, for the folks here to be thankful for individuals and the way that God has worked through them and uh, answered prayers in that regard. And that's been a blessing. And we have a lot to be thankful for here. Anybody else? How about... Oh, I, t I already talked about the hand handout that uh, I made. And I'm sorry that not everybody got one. I hope you you do get one. I the last time I was here, I had uh, my my prayer book, and I I keep it right on there in each page, so that when I start in the morning writing down what I want to remember to pray about, I can look at that and, and think if if I'm on track. I'm not perfect. So let me finish here. Then this past Friday. I'm pretty sure that we all received an email from Ray Warwick, who, you know, he recently relocated to, to Tucson. You know, and I felt like, when I, when I read it, I felt like I was reading from 1 Thessalonians, one of Paul's prayers. So let me read it again now, and, and see, I hope you see the correlation between Ray and Paul. And Ray, if you're listening, I hope I'm not embarrassing you here. Like many of you, I have sat with the congregation of Pacific Hope Saints as our leaders have prayed for members of our church family as they were leaving San Diego for other locations. Those have always been painful times. Although we all sincerely submitted to the providence of God and committed our loved ones to his gracious care, now I can tell you from personal experience it's no less painful for the ones who are moving away. 
Ryan. <laughs> For me, at least, the emotion has moved beyond sadness to sorrow. I love Pacific Hope Church. I love you all, and I'll miss being among you in so many ways. The main thing I wanted to tell you this past Lord's Day, and couldn't, is how grateful Peggy and I are for your love and ministry in our lives these last 13 years. I can't count how many times my aching, weary soul has been received, revived just by gathering and fellowshipping with you all on Sundays and worshiping our glorious God, singing together with my brothers and sisters, uniting our hearts in prayer, and being encouraged, exhorted, rebuked, inspired by the preaching of God's word. There's no feeling in this life to me more precious than the sweet fellowship of the saints as we worship together. Thank you all for your impact in our lives. Please be assured of our prayers for you, for all of you, as our Lord continues his remarkable work at Pacific Hope Church. And please remember Peggy and Ray in your prayers. I look forward to those times when I'm able, as God gives opportunity, to come to visit and worship with you in the days ahead. Soli Deo Gloria. Whenever I see Gloria, I can't help but think of John, and you all know why. So let me end here, and I'm going to end with a prayer that from Paul in Colossians. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each person. Lord, I thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.